And please take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Last week I began our sermon by speaking uh, foundationally. And we're going to do the same this morning a little bit deeper. Over the past several weeks we've been exploring God's commands in regards to those who are married. Verses 1-9 through of 1 Corinthians 7 told us that married persons have a physical obligation one to another. That they are covenanted to their spouse. That their body is not their own. That it has been given to another. They are no longer responsible just for themselves by that same token. They are responsible to the other. Now within this context, we understood that marriage as a covenant and as sealed by the vows of lifelong devotion is the only way in which a believer can express that physical intimacy without defiling the relationship that they have with God through salvation. Now Paul also alluded to his suggestion in regard to unmarried persons that we will explore, not next week, which is Missions Conference, but the week after that, that if at all possible, unmarried persons should indeed remain unmarried, at least within the context of his teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, this recommendation would have perhaps caused some degree of anguish or confusion on the part of those who were already married in the church. If it's best to be unmarried, perhaps they thought, should I just divorce? Would it not be better for me to leave my marriage so that I can spend my time and my resources exclusively upon God and His will? Now, Paul answered that question as we discovered last week in verses 10 through 16, that indeed, no, they should not divorce, that they should not separate. He echoed the commands of Jesus Christ in Scripture that marriage is intended by God to be for life. So that to break one's marriage vows is to sin against God. We highlighted last week the importance within the scope of these verses of distinguishing between a marriage involving a believer and one that does not involve a believer at all. And as without, with anything else in life, um, we cannot expect unbelievers to abide or to care for the precepts of God. So, in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, we reviewed a little bit last week. The scriptures tell us that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Unbelievers who are inherently living lives in the flesh due to the absence of the Spirit simply cannot please God. They may go to church, but they're not pleasing God. They may help charities, but they're not pleasing God. The only thing that pleases God are things that are done in faith. And the unbeliever is not exercising faith because he is indeed an unbeliever. He is in the flesh, so he cannot please God. However, a believer can please God. And so we recognize that in the believing context, when a person gets saved, their marriage is now expected to fall under the commands of God in regard to staying together, uh, faithfulness, and um, being faithful to the vows that God has given us. Now, Paul also makes mention of the fact that Should a believer need to be divorced, which does um, happen in a sin-sick world, it is absolute that they should never remarry unless they be reconciled to their former spouse. We discussed last week that there are no that the, the exception clause, we covered the exception clause and discussed how in fact that exception clause is not valid 
in the context of the believing marriage that um, the exception clause of Matthew 19 is invalid. And the only time a believer is expected to go through a divorce is when the unbelieving spouse initiates that separation, at which point the believing spouse is not under biblical obligation to try and salvage that marriage. However, they must still remain unmarried in faithfulness to God's command. And so Paul has, has given all of these commands, and I'm, I've reviewed them over several weeks. If you were not here last week and you want to hear that message, Lord willing, we'll get that message up from last week soon. There were some audio uh, difficulties in the morning service last week, so I, I will have to um, fix that before we can get that message up. But all of these things lay upon a foundation. And we talked just briefly, alluded to just briefly to that foundation last week. And here's the foundation upon which all of this rests. We serve an unchanging God. He is 100% faithful and 100% consistent. Because God is so faithful, if we understand the foundations upon which His commands rest, well then we can understand the principles that are built upon that foundation. And we have a better grasp upon those principles if we understand the foundation. And so, the principles that we've seen over the past several weeks are these. In chapter 6, verses 12-14, through 14, that liberty is not license. We talked about that for several weeks. And then in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 6, that a believer is God's both body and soul. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, that marriage is the exclusively ordained source of physical intimacy. And then in chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, that marriage is intended to be lifelong, without exception. And so as we look at the scope of all of the principles that, that we have been given over these past several weeks... They're all founded upon the same solid truths about God's consistency and God's faithfulness. The principles are clear. They leave little room for variation. And when we see them in this manner, we begin to understand all that God wants us to, to, to see here. And then we can flesh this principle out in a coherent way. And so... This proper foundation is, as I describe it in the next slide, that God's supremacy is over all things in a believer's life. And then as God is supreme over all things, we build upon that supremacy each of the principles that we see, that we saw there, that the, our body is the Lord's, that our body is our spouse's, that it is our spouse's for life. And so we have the, the supremacy of God over all things, and then His commands are built on top of that important foundation. Once we have the proper foundation that in our lives we need to please God above ourselves and rest on these things, then everything else will not be a struggle for us. When we understand that God owns us, body and soul, we will not have a problem with the command not to commit fornication. When we understand that God owns us, body and soul, we will understand the divine implications of marriage being only um, between one man and one woman and the only way in which physical intimacy is allowed by God to be expressed on this earth. When we understand that God owns us, both body and soul, we will understand the absolute theological necessity of marriage as a lifelong covenant, an earthly reflection of the believer's life and of God's eternal faithfulness. If God is faithful to that which He is, should not His children be faithful to that which is theirs? That's really 
the foundation. If God is supreme over all things and He's faithful to that which is His, then should we not seek to reflect God by being faithful to that which is ours? So verses 17 through 24 add another principle today. And this principle will help us in two ways. First, it will expand our understanding of God's supremacy beyond simply marriage and it will touch every other area of our lives. So Paul has used this marriage example as he's answering questions from the church of Corinth and now he's going to balloon that marriage example and he's going to allow this principle of God's supremacy over our lives, of God owning us body and soul to touch every other aspect of our lives. Second, this morning, it will solidify our understanding of the differences between the liberty that believers have within the context of that which is material and the obligation that believers have within the context of that which is spiritual. So while we do have liberty in this life, we also have obligation. And Paul's teaching today in verses 17 through 24 is going to help us understand that better. So let's get started. Let's read the passage together. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 17 and we'll read through verse 24. The scriptures tell us, But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not be uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou may, mayest be free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with. God. And as we step into verse 17, we see this phrase, as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. You know, God has given mankind tremendous liberty in this life. Free will, if you may. Within the context, Paul is saying that you have the liberty, in 1 Corinthians 7, to get married. And you have the liberty to abstain from marriage. Now, this is an interesting concept within the scope of Christian society today. Now, there are several circles, and really, this group is an amazingly eclectic group. We come from all walks of Christian life. Um, there are several Christian circles that are represented in this group. But as a whole, we'll address this more in the weeks to come, but in Christian culture, marriage is in many ways a foregone conclusion, particularly for young ladies, isn't it? And this is not inherently a bad thing. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 does tell us that marriage is honorable in all things, in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers will be judged. So marriage is honorable. It's an honorable institution in the sight of the Lord. In 1 Timothy 3, we see the qualifications for pastors uh, and for deacons, or for bishops and deacons as it's used here in the text. And it seems almost to be a foregone conclusion that many of those seeking these offices would be married men, so much so that it is explicitly stated that they had to be husbands of one wife, that they could not be divorced. Psalm 127 speaks of the heritage that is found through children. Verses 3-5 through five says this, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, 
and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So the idea that the, the, a child is a man's ability, it expresses a man's ability to send forth the word of God and the testimony of God into the world as a chair, uh, child being an arrow, he is, draws that back and he shoots it out into the world and he is able to influence the world by his ministry unto his children. And the scriptures are very clear that children are a blessing from the Lord and we know that children are a product of the marriage relationship. So what we must understand in this week and then in the several weeks to come is that Paul is not anti-marriage. He's not anti-family. As a matter of fact, the majority, the bulk of the teaching we have on marriage and family in the New Testament was written by Paul. Timothy. First Timothy was written by Paul. Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 was written by Paul. Titus was written by Paul as well. And there's a great amount of teaching there about um, the young women being obedient to their own husbands, uh, the older women teaching the young women. Um, so there, there's the whole family dynamic there as well. So Paul is not anti-family. He's not anti-marriage. But in verse 17, he says, As God hath distributed to every man, let him so let him walk. So the principles established here, it's not to forbid marriage, but it is divine encouragement that we not demand marriage for ourselves or for others. And the principle, however, as we'll see as we continue through the context, is much deeper than just marriage. Paul is not speaking exclusively on marriage. He's going to balloon this topic well beyond marriage, and it's going to touch every aspect of life and liberty for the Christian. And so Paul says this in verse 18. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Paul uses the word called in our passage several times and with some degree of ambiguity. Uh, the Greek word there is kaleo, which means to call or to name or to invite. And within this verse, we have to see it in a spiritual context. It seems very clear in verse 18, both here in the English as well as in the Greek, that Paul is describing the physical circumstances that are surrounding a man's spiritual call. A man's spiritual call throughout scriptures is seen as the moment which he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. So the moment that he accepts Christ as his Savior, he became one of the called. Has any man been called, has any man accepted Christ as his Savior, being circumcised, is really what he's saying, let him not become uncircumcised. Now, we've seen this concept of the calling of God in a spiritual sense all throughout the epistles, including in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, or the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. This verse well demonstrates the classic spiritual usage of the word "called," that we are those who have been called, have a calling placed upon our lives to live lives of righteous piety by virtue of our salvation in Jesus Christ. So, really, the 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 moment of being born again and the moment of our calling we would say are synonymous, are one in the same. 
And so in verse 18, Paul says, Is any man called being circumcised? The man who was circumcised at the time of his conversion to Christ should not feel as though circumcision is anything wrong and should not be ashamed of it. Likewise, a man who is uncircumcised at the time of his conversion should feel no compulsion due to his salvation to become circumcised. See, there are physical elements that have no spiritual bearing. And so they have no spiritual weight behind them. And Paul is teaching here, as well as he teaches in Galatians and various other places, that there is no spiritual weight behind circumcision. Now, why might they have thought circumcision would be important? Well, because, as we've mentioned many times, the Corinthian church was made up of many Jews, as well as many Gentiles, Greeks and Romans. And to the Jews, the custom, the tradition of circumcision on the eighth day following their birth was something that was written in the law, something that God expected them to do. It was a sign of their physical covenant with the Lord. And so this was something that would have been very important, and there were many in the church, and that's part of what we read in Galatians chapter 1 this morning, that were preaching that there were certain external things that needed to be done in order for a person to be part of God's church, in order for a person to be saved. And one of the teachings was that a man had to become uh, attached to the physical Jewish people by means of circumcision. Paul says that this is not true. As a matter of fact, in Galatians, he calls this another gospel. In this particular context, he simply says that if you have been called being circumcised, you don't need to be uncircumcised and vice versa. What does have spiritual weight behind it then? If, if the physical things like circumcision or uncircumcision, these things that God had commanded that have a spiritual significance, at least to the Jewish people, if these things don't actually have spiritual weight behind them, then, well, then what does? Well, verse 19 tells us, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. What does have spiritual weight? Obedience to the Word of God. There are no physical external marks that are conditions of spiritual fruit and blessedness. On the contrary, what does matter? Well, what matters is keeping God's commandments. And we know that this will boil over into spiritual aspects of our, or into physical aspects of our lives. We know that as we keep God's commandments in our heart, that it's going to manifest itself in certain things that we do in this life and certain things that we don't do. You are in church today as at least a partial response, I would assume, to the commandments of God that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so as we seek to obey the commandments of God, one of the things that we're going to do is seek a body of believers that we can attach ourselves to for mutual edification and accountability. But there are other things, physical things in this life, that really don't matter. Paul's example here, circumcision and uncircumcision. But it won't stop there. He also is going to give the example of vocations. A a vocation really doesn't play into your spiritual life. And so in verse 20 he says, Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Here's where things can become a little bit confusing within the context uh, of Paul's usage of the word calling or called. The calling which Paul speaks of here is specifically in the context whether to be circumcised or uncircumcised. But the called 
is referencing the spiritual call upon a person's life. And so if we were to clarify this verse and to highlight this verse in the way Paul is intending it to be read, it would be perhaps this way. That every man should feel comfortable remaining in the same physical circumstances after their salvation as they were before their salvation, barring immorality. So we should abide in the same physical calling in which we were spiritually called, is what, how this verse is intended to read out. One commentator put it this way, The call to conversion radically altered an individual spirit relationship, but need not affect changes at all in physical relationships that were not immoral. So the spiritual change that happened at the moment of salvation didn't necessarily mean that you had to change anything physical with the exception of that which was not moral, that was not in line with the keeping of the commandments of God. And Paul's going to use an example here. An example of a physical vocation as the means by which to express his point in verses 21 and 22. So let's look at this example and then we'll try to tie some loose ends together. In verse 21, Paul says, Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. And then he says, uh, as he continues in verse 21, But if thou mayest be free, use it rather. For he, verse 22, that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Paul says, he asks, were you saved as a servant? He says, that's fine. You can be a servant and be a Christian. You can abide in your calling as a servant, the circumstances physically that you're in, and still abide by your call as a believer. These are not incompatible. Now, Christianity does not inherently, this means, loose you from your civic or your societal duties. That's what Paul is saying here. Christianity does not loose you from your civic and societal duties. Let's take a brief moment this morning and understand the context of Paul speaking to servants in the church. The society in which Paul was writing here had a very different concept of a servant than we would have today. In this society, there were various classes, but the largest distinction was between the free man and the servant or the indentured servant. Such class distinctions existed among the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, and even on our side of this millennium, class distinctions existed for hundreds and hundreds of years in Western Europe. In places like India, this class distinction is still around today. You think of the feudal times in Europe and the way that the classes laid out that there would be your servant class and there would be your lords and there was a bloodline that inherited these positions. It's very similar in many respects at this time as Paul was writing to these Gentiles and Jews in Corinth. In this system, a servant was always a servant. It was not simply his vocation, it was his situation. It was his life. If he had children, his children were born servants. And they would always be servants. They could not promote themselves out of servitude. They couldn't just quit their job and go find an entrepreneurial job of their own. It was what it was. You were born a servant. Unless your master decided to free you 
or somehow the law freed you, you were stuck as a servant. Now, it's also possible that a man would become a servant in order to pay a debt. This would be a temporary form of servitude whereby he was indeed an indentured servant for as long as he had this debt. Once his debt was paid, he would be freed. Oftentimes, however, a man could not pay his debt while he was in servitude, and so it would be a perpetual cycle. He indeed would have sold himself into slavery. Likewise, the free man was always a free man. When a man was freed, he could not be placed into servitude again except under unique circumstances, such as things as debt or him selling himself into slavery again. So free men were free to pursue their interests and their vocations according to their own pleasure. They had legal rights that servants did not have. Servants could not vote. Free men could vote. And so if a man was a servant and then his master chose to free him, he would immediately gain voting rights if it was a voting society. If it was a representative form of government, as the Greeks would have been uh, several hundred years before Paul's writing here. And so what we understand here is, as Paul is writing about the servants and the freemen, he's writing about people that find themselves in a certain situation. And the necessity that they abide in their situation. Being a believer did not free a person from their earthly occupation, their earthly obligations. Nor was there any contradiction between being a believer and being an indentured servant, just as there was no contradiction between being a believer and being a freeman. However, he does say in verse 21 that if you are free, that's wonderful. And if you have the opportunity to become free, then by all means take it. However, don't be discontent in whatever situation you find yourself in. It's not wrong to be free. It's not wrong to be a servant. Belief on Jesus Christ does not expect any physical or material conditions, nor does it refuse any physical or material conditions. So Paul says in verse 22, He that's called being uh, in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. So Paul presents two conditions here that works simultaneously in the Christian life. The first is freedom. Every believer, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, child or adult, every believer inherits the spiritual liberties that are taught in the Word of God. We've talked about these liberties over the past several weeks. Things that are lawful unto us. The ability that we have to live in society and to carry out life in such a way to not have to go become a recluse, hide out in caves, wear... um, Uh, reject all wealth, where uh, just minimum, eat bread and water. We we have the liberty in this life to, to live in the society in which we find ourselves in. Paul describes it this way in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but uh, but Christ is all and in all. So there's no bond nor free. There's no male nor female. There's no Jew nor Gentile. We're all one in Christ. We have that liberty. However, the second condition that we see is submission. That every believer, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, child or adult, is under a spiritual obligation to align himself with the expectations taught in God's Word. So when you are a free man... That does not free you from the expectations of God's Word any more than being a servant would 
hold you to different obligations in God's word. This is the condition that Peter gives as he exhorts believers in 1 Peter to obey their respective governments. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Notice this last phrase here. As free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. So the believer's freedom in Christ, whether he's a free man or a slave, his freedom in Christ allows him the liberty of operating in this world in unique and distinct ways from other believers. It's tempered and directed by the truth that Christ has bought your freedom with his blood and therefore he's worthy of your complete devotion. And so this is that balance that we're trying to present here over these weeks between the liberty that we have in Christ and the obligations that we find in Christ. The liberty that we have in this world and the obligations that we have in this world through Christ. Some interesting dynamics, are they not? So the servant on earth is still a servant on earth, but he is free in Christ to serve God as he ought. The freeman on this earth is still a freeman on this earth, but he is a servant of Christ, having been freed from sin. And so what Paul is saying here is there's no difference between them. The servant is free in the Lord, but obligated to the commands of the Lord. The freeman is free in the Lord, but obligated to the commands of the Lord. There's no difference spiritually between the freeman and the servant. The rich man is no better than the poor man. The servant is no less important or valuable than the free man in Christ. The male is no better than the female in Christ. The Gentile is no less important than the Jew in Christ. But isn't this the temptation of the human condition? Don't we always seek to put everyone in a class and judge people against others? Don't we always seek to funnel people into some classification system whereby we can say, this person is more important than this person, this person is better than this person, this person is more special than this person, this person has more rights than this person? Isn't that just human nature? Does not James even have to rebuke the church for this very thing in James chapter 2? James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says this, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect unto him that weareth the gay clothing, or, or bright or happy clothing, the, the, the wealthy clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here, under my footstool, are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? So James is saying, when the rich man comes into your assembly, don't put him in the honored seat and then tell the poor man that comes into that same assembly, you just go ahead and sit on the floor wherever you can find a spot or why don't you go stand in the corner? Are you not, when you're doing that, judging the heart of a man by his appearance? Are you not honoring a man as being more spiritual simply because he looks better? James says, don't do that. Don't have respective persons. Paul would say the same thing in Romans chapter 2, verse 11. There is no respective persons with God. If God doesn't regard class 
or society or gender or appearance or nationality in respect to the spiritual relationship that we have with Christ, why should we then as God's people assume that there is any physical condition upon which a relationship with Jesus Christ rests? We know what the Bible says. For by grace are you saved through faith, not not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. A relationship with Jesus Christ is not contingent upon our position or the things that we do. It's contingent upon the gift of Christ and our willingness to accept that gift by belief. And so verse 23 tells us, Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Wait a minute. I thought Paul just said that the servants should remain as servants. Didn't he? He did. So what does this mean? Is Paul contradicting himself? He says, be not servants of men, but servants remain in your position. What is he saying here? Is he contradicting himself? No, he's not. What he's saying here is that regardless of your physical condition, every believer is free in Christ to serve the Lord according to his own conscience. So if we have this tremendous freedom in Christ, we dare not allow anyone to seek to bind us to man-made expectations of Christianity that supersede God's own expectations in His Word. This is what Peter would tell us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, without blemish and without spot, you haven't been redeemed with corruptible things. Circumcision is not going to redeem you unto Christ. Wearing a suit to church is not going to redeem you unto Christ. These are not conditions upon which our spiritual life rests. We'll highlight that a little bit more in our application in just a few minutes. Romans chapter 6.19, Paul says this, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness and holiness. And this is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. It's not about whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're a servant or you're a free man. It's about obeying the commandments of God. It's about yielding your members as servants to righteousness unto holiness. We may have physical obligations to people on this earth, but we have no spiritual obligations to people on this earth. As a citizen of a country, the United States, as a citizen of a state, the state of Minnesota, as employees of various businesses, as members of a family, we have physical expectations that are placed upon us. We are called by God to abide in that calling. Abide in those physical expectations. Abide in the expectations of the United States government. Abide in the expectations of the Minnesota government. Abide in the expectations of your family. None of those physical expectations, aside from those that would contradict the commandments of God, are invalidated by you being a Christian. But just because you're under a nation's expectations, we call those laws, or an employer's physical expectations, we call that a code of conduct for the workplace, or a family's physical expectations, standards and rules, this does not mean that you are spiritually accountable to that government or to that employer or to that 
family, this does not mean that you are spiritually subservient to them. We serve Christ. We'll come back to this in our application as well. Now our final verse today reiterates the positive command once again. Verse 24. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. In whatever condition you're called, were you born in the United States? Were you born in Canada? Were you born in Mexico? Regardless of whatever government you find yourself subservient to, were you born into a believing family, into an unbelieving family? Regardless of whatever family circumstance you find yourself subservient to, were you born as a freeman? Were you born as a slave? Regardless of whatever class you find yourself born into, abide in that calling with God. Serve God within that calling. Let's apply this morning. Three truths this morning that I'd like to apply to our hearts as we leave this message. Number one, beware of false spiritual expectations. Number two, take note of true spiritual expectations. And number three, always have a God-serving mindset. Always have a God-serving mindset. Let's talk about these points together. You know, there are a lot of ideas out there about what it means to be a Christian. We'll start up door-knocking, Lord willing, in maybe a month or so, once things warm up. And as we do so, and we knock on those doors, people are going to come to the door and, and they're going to talk about um, their spiritual lives, some of them will, and they're going to have many ideas as to why they think they're a Christian. There are people convinced that they're Christians because they keep the Old Testament law. There are people that are convinced they're Christians because they have submitted themselves to church dogma and tradition. There are people convinced that Christians must be married and raise, raise huge families, and if you're not married and you don't raise a huge family, then you're not a good Christian. There are people convinced that Christians must um, conform themselves to some element of Christian culture, whether that's um, going to church a certain number of times per week, wearing a certain something to church, homeschooling their children, whatever the case may be. Now, many of these things are good and virtuous. Having a family is a good thing. Homeschooling children is a good thing. Many church traditions are good things. Even some Old Testament laws are, are good and valid and, and very beneficial. But none of them is a biblical command to born-again believers. They might be worthy of our time, they might be worthy of our effort, but they are not the standards by which we gauge our relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't look at a person's what they wear to church and gauge their spirituality. You can't look at whether a person homeschools or not and gauge their spirituality. These aren't proper frameworks. They're false spiritual expectations. When we begin to submit our, idea, or our minds to the idea that these physical do's and don'ts are the inherent aspects of a believer's life that dictate his relationship with the Lord, we go down a dangerous path. If we believe like many of the Jews in Corinth did, that every man and woman must be married in order to be in God's perfect will, then we are imposing unbiblical expectations upon Christians. If we believe as the Gentiles or the Greeks and Romans in Corinth did, that marriage is something that is no longer necessary, that it's unrefined, that it's unenlightened, that it's unworthy of a man's physical efforts, then we are imposing unbiblical inhibitions or restrictions upon the Christian relationship. 
In other words, I guess let me put it this way. We Christians are kind of nosy folk, aren't we? And we're kind of bossy, aren't we? we? We have a way that things work. And we think because this works for me, it must work for everyone. But we Christians can also be kind of lazy in our spiritual lives. And so we bossy Christians give the 12 steps to being a godly person, right? If you do this and you do this and you do that and you look this way and you say these things and you don't go here and you don't do this, then you're a godly person. And then we lazy Christians look at godly people who have done these things and say, oh, okay, well, if that made you godly, then that's going to make me godly too. And so we're either denying the Spirit's ability to work in others' hearts by being a bossy Christian or we're denying the Spirit's ability to work in our own hearts by being a lazy Christian. And neither one is really effective. Let me give you an illustration. The diet craze. Fifteen years ago, perhaps, was when I started seeing the, the real big diet craze. Early 2000s, maybe late 90s. The huge diet crazes where it seemed like there was a new diet out every day, right? You had... Um, you had the, the no-carb diet, and you had the, the, the no-fat diet, and you had the protein diet, and you had all of these different diets coming out. And every single person, they'd get on TV, and what would they say? I cut out all carbs, and I lost a million pounds. You should too. Oh, by the way, if you pay me, I'll show you how to do it. And then you get the guy that says, I cut out all fats, and I lost a million pounds. You should too. And by the way, if you pay me, I'll show you how to do it. And then the next guy gets up and he says, I, didn't, I, I ate whatever I wanted, but I had this particular exercise regime and I lost a million pounds. And by the way, you can too. If you pay me, I'll tell you what that exercise regime is. And so we have diet after diet after diet. I only ate Subway for a whole year and I lost a million pounds. I only ate McDonald's for a whole year and I lost a million pounds. And I, I took this pill and I lost a million pounds. And so everyone's losing a million pounds and it's their program. It's their program that's going to be the one. It's their program that's going to work. And what happens? Every year you try a different program and you don't lose a million pounds. And then you move on to the next program and you don't lose a million pounds. And we start to understand as we see program after program after program, many of these programs, everyone's losing a million pounds, but they're contradicting each other in these programs. Eat carbs, don't eat carbs. Eat proteins, don't eat proteins. And everyone's losing a million pounds and no one's losing a million pounds, right? That's what we do in Christianity. I stopped doing this and stopped doing that and started doing this and started doing that and I found a proper relationship with the Lord. You should too. And, and they say, oh, okay, good. A 12-step Christianity program. Let's do it. And they, they start going through it and they say, because I have been able to conform myself to these expectations, that means I must be a godly person. But they're doing it for the wrong motivation. They, their heart isn't with the Lord on it. And so there's no, there's no real effect. They're not becoming more of a godly person. They're becoming more proud, judgmental, because they think they're a godly person because they've done the 12 steps. That's exactly what we do in the Christian life. If I wear this and have a godly family, then you should wear this because that'll help you too. If I listen to this and have a godly family, then you should listen to this and it'll help you too. If I read this and am wise and godly, then you should too. I have these rules and I'm a well-rounded believer, so you should have these rules too. And in doing so, we 
fail to point people to the foundation because they're too busy dealing with the fruit. See, what I am as a believer is a manifestation of my heart. The things that my family has put in place and the things we haven't, the, the things we do, the things we don't do are a manifestation of how God has led me in my family to lead my family into godliness. And that doesn't mean everything is right. And that doesn't mean that everything's wrong. But it's the way God has led me in my relationship. And I've looked at other people and I said, that's a really good idea. I, I, I think I want to try to do that. And I've looked at other people and I've seen what they do and I say, you know, that's not for me. But if I try to clone what other believers are doing and I try to gauge my spirituality on whether or not I look like that other believer, they may be right with the Lord because they have put a framework in place that helps them do so, but that framework may not be for me and I might just fall flat. So that I'm motivated by pride in trying to look godly instead of being motivated by godliness to become godly. To have a right relationship with the Lord. And that is the danger of false spiritual expectations. When we place false expectations, when we say godliness must be contingent upon whether or not I wear a suit, or I wear a tie, or fill in the blank. Two, first beware of false spiritual expectations. Second, take note of true spiritual expectations. What do I mean? This idea of the foundation of godliness. How is it that we don't just teach people the fruit of godliness, we teach people the foundation of godliness? Well, that's our second point. Rather than stressing over the physical expectations of believers, what we ought to be focusing on is the spiritual relationship of believers to God and one to another. Romans chapter 14, 17 tells us that the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, obviously... If a man says, I'm serving the Lord the way he's led me to, and he's watching trash on TV that is absolutely unvirtuous, he's not fulfilling righteousness. He's not fulfilling the expectations of God. So he's not living a life in alignment with the kingdom of God because it's not a life of righteousness. So I'm not giving people, nor is the scriptures giving people license or excuse here. But Romans chapter 14, verse 7 does tell us that it's not about the physical, it's about righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. It's about the, the spiritual. Let's go back to our diet example for a moment. Apart from all these diets, there are foundational things that are essential to losing weight and being healthy, right? We are all pretty aware of what those foundational things are. You need to eat right, you need to eat in moderation. And you need to be active. Three things that will, will help you lose weight and be healthy. Eat right, eat in moderation, and be active. You don't need a diet plan to know that. You just need to live. And you realize that. If you're sitting on your couch watching TV and eating potato chips all day, you're going to gain a little something around the midsection. If you get outside and you start digging holes in the ground, you're going to lose that. If you're eating potato chips, you're more likely to gain weight than if you're eating celery. These are things that we understand. Various combinations of these three elements will help people lose weight and keep the weight off. Regardless of whatever diet package you do, these elements are essential. 
Likewise, in the Christian life, Paul teaches us that the foundational spiritual essentials are what matters. Am I obeying the clear commands of Scripture? Am I loving my neighbor as myself? Am I loving God, righteousness, joy, peace in the Holy Ghost? Am I being obedient to the Word of God to the extent that the Spirit of God is able to manifest His fruit through my life? Or am I grieving the Spirit of God? quenching His Spirit through the works of the flesh so that God is not able to manifest His fruit through me as He would desire. This is the essence of the Christian life. Do I go to bed every night and can I look back on what I did that day in good conscience? Or do I look back and have I offended my conscience in that day? Am I living a life that whereby I have confessed all the sin? Or am I living with unconfessed sin and in rebellion against God? Am I doing the simple things that God has called us to do? Am I obeying my parents? That's so clearly enumerated in Scripture. Am I being truthful? That's so clearly enumerated in Scripture. Am I serving one another? That's so clearly enumerated in Scripture. Am I gossiping? I, there's no place for gossip in the life of a believer. Am I backbiting? There's no place for backbiting in the life of a believer. Am I committing fornication? There's no place for that. These are the basics. These are the essentials. These are those, the three things, Right? Just like eating right, eating in moderation, and being active. God has given us the essentials of the Christian life, and they're pretty plain and clear. And then out of those essentials, we find the right combination whereby God is leading us into a healthy, vibrant Christian life. Back to our diet illustration. No particular diet is key. The same principles of temperance and discipline are found throughout every diet. But let me ask you one more question. As we think about this, true spiritual expectations, and we highlight or we we, um, compare that to this diet illustration, are diets actually a bad thing? No. If the 12-step program works for you, It's not a bad thing. See, we need discipline. We need structure, don't we, in the Christian life? Just as we do in our physical life. Though you know that eating right, eating healthy, and being active are the three important things, perhaps you need accountability or you're never going to do it. Perhaps you need something that you can check off every day or you're never going to do it. And you're not doing it just to check it off the list. I'm going to check that I ate celery all day even though all I ate was cookies all day and I'm just going to check it off the list, right? So that I can show everyone, look, look, I ate celery all day and I gained 10 pounds this week. You can do that, but but you're not going to find any effect. So as a Christian, you can read your Bible every day and pray every day and wear a suit to church and if all you're doing is checking it off the list, you're going to be just as spiritually unhealthy as ever. But if you see a framework that works for you, There are at least two reading plans on that back table. I love having a Bible reading plan. It works for me. And so there are reading plans on the back table. If a reading plan works for you to get you into the Bible every day, it's not wrong to check that off your list. It's not sinful for you to have a plan that you go to every day and you check that off the list. God has used that reading plan in magnificent ways in my life. Every year He does. But if I'm doing it just so that I can check it off the list and at the end of the year I frame it and I bring it in and I set it in the church and I write Pastor Wickler's reading plan on it and I didn't even read half those days but I checked it all off so you can think I'm spiritual, 
then I'm still the, the fat person eating potato chips, sitting at home, checking off that he's eating celery every day. That's all I'm doing. So a diet plan is not wrong any more than structure in a Christian life is wrong. But we all have a different way that we see that diet plan enacted in our lives. And we all have different ways in which we live out this Christian life. Final point. So traditions, on that point, traditions, high standards, physical, religious, um, acts, piety, these are not bad things. Not bad things at all. Third and finally, always have a God-serving mindset. Always have a God-serving mindset. You know, everything we've talked about today comes down to one essential concept. This is that foundation. The fact that God is supreme over all things. The reality is that in this life, we need to have the mindset that we are serving God. We're not serving men. It doesn't matter whether I have a wicked government or whether I have a righteous government. Because when I pay my taxes, I'm not paying my taxes to support my country. I'm paying my taxes to obey my God. It doesn't matter whether I have a crummy boss or a great boss. Because when I do my job to the best of my ability at work, I'm not doing my job to impress my boss or to get a raise or to get a promotion. I'm doing a great job because God has called me to do a great job. It doesn't matter if I have godly parents or ungodly parents, legalistic parents or liberal parents. If I, the, the reason why I, I obey my parents, the reason why I do my chores, the reason why I dress the way I dress, they've told me to dress that way, the reason why we do what we do in the house is not inherently because I want to please my parents or I think my parents are right, but I do it inherently because God has told me to honor my parents. And I'm serving God by obeying my parents. So if we would get a mindset that when we're at home, our hobbies are about serving the Lord. When we're at work, our job is about serving the Lord. When we're under our parents' authority, it's about serving the Lord. When we're under our government's authority, it's about serving the Lord. If we would understand this mindset that we always serve God, then we're going to find things much easier in this life. See, because it's very becoming very difficult for us to justify some of our loyalties in this country. It used to be for several years that being a patriot and being a Christian were synonymous. Well, nowadays, they're becoming antithesis, aren't they? You, you have a hard time supporting your government and supporting the Word of God. And this has led Christians to advocate many different things. But the fact of the matter is, the Scriptures have called on us to... Submit to our government to whatever degree that government is not asking us to do anything unbiblical. And we don't do it because we like our government. We do it because we serve our God. You're, you may not agree with everything that your parents ask you to do. Their dress standard, their music standard, their uh, allowances as far as what they let you do and what they don't let you do. You may not have those same, same standards one day when you get out of the house. Yours might be more conservative. Yours might be less conservative. But it doesn't matter. Because it's not about you understanding or agreeing with them. It's about you serving God with all your heart. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. You do it for God. 
Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8 tells us this. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. And so, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 tells us, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 tells us, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart. Why? Fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Did you see the commonality between all of these commands to obey human authorities? It was that you're not obeying human authorities because you agree with them or because you like them, but you're doing it because you're obeying the Lord. And as you obey your human authorities, you are showing this world that you obey God. And so somebody comes up to you at work and says, hey, look, the boss isn't around. Why are you still working hard? Well, I'm working hard because I'm not serving my boss. I'm serving my God. And they begin to see that there's something different about this guy. And so your friends or relatives come up and they say, how do you deal with your parents' restrictions upon you? How do you deal with all this stuff they ask you to do? And you say, I'm not dealing with them. I'm dealing with God. I'm obeying my Lord. I'm serving my God. That's the essence of what Paul is saying here. The freedoms that you have, the limitations that you have, it all comes down to this concept of abiding in the commandments of God. So, as we apply, let me ask you a few questions. Number one, are you abiding in the commandments of God's Word? Have you been so caught up in serving your church or your parents or your boss, your teachers or whoever it is that you have failed to remember the one that you are truly serving as God? Have you been led astray by false standards of expecting of expectation in Christianity so that whether in liberality or legalism you have sought to serve a system or to serve yourself rather than serving God? Are your thoughts and actions laid firmly upon the foundation of God's commandments so that everything you do to your best ability is in line with the Word of God? As we rest upon this foundation, do you have the right mindset regarding who you're serving? If you were truly serving God in all things, how would that change what you do? Let's not fall into the diet plan mentality as Christians. Let's not get to the point where we're looking for the checklist system and not actually pouring our heart into that system to seek to serve God. Let's serve God out of a true heart. Let's understand the principles, the foundation that must be there in order to be right with God, and let's live it out in our lives.